This morning we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10. And the last time we looked at Christ's superior sacrifice and obeying God's will as a result of that, today we're going to look at really group the rest of these verses into six responsibilities as a result of Christ's superior sacrifice. So verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. We're going to start off slow and then we're going to ramp it up a little bit. So with the first verse, therefore, therefore what? Some have said when you see a therefore, you have to find out what the therefore is there for, right? So as a result of Christ's superior once and for all sacrifice for our sins, and the first point, the first responsibility is our responsibility to receive his blessings. Now that sounds kind of strange. You're giving me permission to receive God's blessings. You know, people come to church, they're, they're hurting, they come to the cross, they're wounded, they um, have things in their past, and, you know, Jesus tells us to lay those packs down, you know, to, to come to him, and he's going to give our souls rest. And sometimes you've got to give people permission to be loved. And that's what Christ wants to do. He wants to love us. He wants a relationship with us. So the first one out of six is give yourself permission to receive his blessings. And that's really a responsibility. See, we boldly enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, it says. And remember, in the Old Testament, actually this was still going on at the time that this letter was written to the Hebrews, the Holy of Holies was still there. The thick veil was still there. The separation between God and man was still there. Although, in the new covenant and the new agreement, Christ gave permission, right? Through him, we can have direct access to God. So this is, I'm going to talk a little bit about transitional imagery. I'm not going to go too much into it because we've covered this the last few chapters. But transitional imagery is when you look at something from the old covenant, you look at the temple, you look at the veil, you look at the priest, and there's symbolism to that, and we've been through that. And then um, the author of Hebrews is saying, but Jesus, this is how he fulfilled that in the new covenant. This is how it's made better. So Jesus gives us access to God. In the Old Testament, the Holy of Holies was God's presence. It was limited when you could go in there and only one person could do it and only one time a year and he had to bring a sacrifice. Now, what do we get? Access to God. The first one, Hebrews 4.16, I keep quoting this. We can come boldly through God's throne of grace where we can receive mercy and grace in the time of need. In prayer. We actually are shuttled into his throne room when we pray. It's like we're right there with him. Isn't that impressive? I think it's very exciting. And the second thing out of the three is that when we die, when we um, give up our physical bodies, we get to spend eternity with him in his presence for, in heaven. And also three, while we're here, in addition to prayer, God is with us. He sends, you know, he, a part of him resides in us in the form of the Holy Spirit. So when you look at that, we can really get a, a chills understanding how close God is to us. Now, we may appreciate this, and, and I do, and I suspect many of you do as well. But you have to remember, to the Hebrew Christians, this was mind-blowing. Because they were still in a system that separated them from God because of their sins. So for them to make this transition was, was amazing stuff. Verse 20. By a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. So Christ's flesh 
was as that veil that separated the presence of God in the temple from everybody else. Again, more transitional imagery. His crucified flesh, when he was struck down, when he bled and died for us on that cross, his, his flesh, at flesh as the veil, in essence, was removed and we were ushered into God's presence. And this brought on a new and living way. It brought on a new relationship, an interactive relationship. And if you're here this morning for the first time, this might be new to you. You know, a lot of us grew up in religions and we were told to not to ask questions and it was, some of it was cold and unsettling. Here, I'm here to tell you that the Bible says that you can have a relationship with the one who created you. Maybe foreign, but I think you're going to get used to it and I think you're going to enjoy it when you get used to it. Right? So I thought about this new and living way, this relationship, and it's kind of funny because the way my house is situated, my office is on the first floor, it's a small office, with a computer and a desk, and there's a window, and when I look out the window, I can see the driveway. And as I was studying this, I was alone. I don't like to be alone, I'm a very, I like to be with people. And as I'm reading this, my wife was coming into the driveway, and I thought, oh great, she's home, we, can, we were having a discussion and I just wanted to share some things with her. And I also looked at my watch, and 10 minutes from that time, my son was going to be getting off the bus, and he started his uh, first year as a, as a high schooler in ninth grade. Right? Pretty cool. <laughs> so I wanted to talk to him, too. And as I'm reading this, it clicked. I enjoy living relationships. My wife, my son, my brothers in Christ, my fellow pastors, my church people, it's a living relationship that I enjoy. And God wants us all to enjoy that with him. Right? And I also thought about how much I look forward to talking with him after a long day, maybe on a drive home, in prayer, just having a discussion with him. Verse 21. And having a high priest over the house of God. Again, more transitional imagery here. The high priest, Jesus as our high priest. We've covered this. 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So what happens is, now we get to the second responsibility. These are our responsibilities in our relationship towards God. Now every relationship, two parties, has responsibilities. Because if one party does not follow through with their uh, responsibilities. We hear words like estrangement, abandonment, divorce. That's what happens when one party doesn't fulfill it, no matter how much the other one tries. Now one party has their free will. So in our relationship with God, in order to keep it alive, God does everything from his end. We also have some responsibilities. Number one, to draw near to him with a true heart. In other words, we come to God in sincerity and truth not pretentious, not like the Pharisees that Jesus spoke about. They put on a show in their pretend relationship with God. They were disingenuous. But we come to God with a true and sincere heart. Two, in full assurance of faith, confident of what God has done and what he's promised us at the cross. Three, our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Again, that transitional imagery where they would sprinkle the blood on the people. Right? That form of consecration to the people. Now, in the New Testament or the New Covenant, when we come to God, we come to him on the same wavelength. What God says is good, I say is good. 
What God says is bad, I say is bad. That homologia in the Greek, the word for confession, homologia means same word. I say the same thing as God says. And I'll tell you what, our lives go a lot smoother when we start to come in line with what God's will is. Instead of constantly trying to push him to do our will. <laughs> Not good. I have experience with that. It doesn't work that well. And four, our bodies are washed with pure water. Now in the Old Covenant, the priests would wash in the laver before they would do their service. Ephesians 5 tells us that Christ washed us, his church, in water. He presents us without spot and, or wrinkle to the Father. The water of the word. Very important. That's why we are very word-based here. Whatever we talk about, whether it's at the pulpit or the women's devotion or men's Bible study, the word has to be a fundamental part of it that holds us together like glue because we're washed continuously by the word. The more we're in the word, the more we start to behave, the more we start to look like Jesus, the more we're in sync with God's will, and the more our prayers are answered because our, we're asking them in accordance with his will. So you see all these kind of pieces come together. 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Some say the confession of our faith. They read that too quickly. I've heard that a lot. It's the confession of our hope. Our hope because God is faithful. Our role to hold fast to that is predicated on what was done at the cross. Now, just so you know, I did not come out of the womb preaching, quoting scripture. I lived many years in the world, uh, and then I came to Christ. So the faith that I have now took a long time to develop. You know, sometimes people, they don't realize that you, you have history, that you have a past, that it wasn't always like this. It's like when you take an oak sapling and you plant it in the ground. I had to ask my wife, she's the horticulturist, is this the right terminology? So you take an oak sapling and you put it in the ground and you, you look at it. And you can stare at it for days and weeks and months and it's not going to look much different. It's going to be flimsy. It's going to be tenuous. It's going to take a while. But after decades pass, you find that it starts to grow those annular rings. It starts to send its roots down. It starts to become very sturdy. That even if a car veers off the road and hits it, it's probably going to have more damage to the car than to the oak. That's the way our faith and trust grows in the Lord. It doesn't happen overnight. So if you're not there yet, don't worry. People come to me all the time. I'm not there. It's been a few months, Pastor Joe, and I'm not there. Why are you putting so much pressure on yourself? <laughs> you know, don't, don't put it, you know. God's not doing that to you. It's going to be on your own time. It'll come. After a few years, you'll look back and you'll see that it's different. It's changed. You've changed. And you actually start to trust him through the difficult times in life. But we hold on to that hope, and we're going to talk about hope and faith in the next chapter, because why? Because God is faithful. 24. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. So the third point, the believer has a responsibility towards other believers. We have a lot of responsibilities here. We're going to talk about this responsibility towards God, towards other believers, towards the assembly, the church. We have responsibility in this relationship. Third, our responsibility towards each other. To stir up what? Love and good works. Love. 
Hey, I've been praying for you, brother. I heard about what's going on in your life. I just want you to know I'm lifting you up in prayer. I love you. I care about you. Good works? Hey, there's an event coming up, and it's really a great thing to serve the Lord. You know, you, you find that divine purpose that you, you just your little part in the kingdom, it's such a blessing. You just, we stir each other up with these things. We incite each other. The word to stir up or to incite, provoke, is the Greek word paroxousmos, where we get the word paroxysm. And paroxysm is a very powerful word. It's, it's, it really is like inciting, but in a good way. And the question is, what are we stirring up? Now, we all know somebody who, I guess what we could call is a pot stirrer. They're always stirring the pot. They're always, whatever, it's, it's your job. They're always making chaos. We're to be the opposite of that. You know, on a daily basis, what are we stirring up? Are we, do we stir up negative emotions? Are we reading the wrong things in, in other brothers and sisters? Are we, call, are we one of those Christians that people don't want to be around? That people have to walk on eggshells around because we're just stirring things up to the negative. But the Bible says that we should be stirring up these good things. And it's just a blessing to see a church filled with people who stir up these good works and this love. That should be our moniker in a sense. And then there's those that do the opposite. I actually started reading this book. It, you know, I love reading something or seeing something, and it kind of goes with the message. For those that do the negative, uh, Anne Graham Lotz, the uh, daughter of Billy Graham, wrote a book called Wounded by God's People. It's a fascinating book. <laughs> you should hear some of her stories, her and her husband. But I'm, I'm starting to read the book, and there's one chapter that says where the wounded becomes the wounders. Again, you got those who, and I like to kind of throw a little sociology into the message, a little therapy. You know, people are interesting. Our behaviors are interesting. There's some that are wounded and hurt, and they want to lash out at the world. And that's the type of believer that you have to walk around eggshells. They're a loose cannon. They're a time bomb. They're a powder keg. And, and it's a sad thing. I always say this, you know, the, the statistics about church attendance being down and you know, the pastorate, people leaving the pastorate. It isn't because of Jesus. I don't care who the person is. They are attracted. When you provide them and you present pure, unadulterated Jesus, they are attracted to that. They're drawn to that. Sometimes they're not drawn to the church because of people. But that's not, that's not a good thing and that's not how we should be. That's an aberration. We need to stir up love and good works. 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. As an aggregate body, our fourth responsibility is towards the assembly or the church, assembling together and it's not a suggestion, it's in God's word. It's something that we should be doing. And the Bible, um, it, it, doesn't, it talks about really what we should be doing in the church. But there are, there are some scriptures that really speak about the actual assembling together and, and how we should be doing it as a group. You know, God is, is funny because he brings us together as sinners, different cultures, different languages, different backgrounds, different political um, you know, aspirations, he brings us all together, and then he says, now play nice in the sandbox. <laughs> it doesn't always work. <laughs> but you know, we wear with each other. 
And I've seen believers that maybe didn't even get along in the beginning, but just after years of being in the same church, they soften towards each other. They call each other brother and sister. They actually become friends. That's what God calls us to do. You know, God doesn't call us to do easy things. We shouldn't be looking to take off every time there's some type of conflict between another brother or sister. He wants us to work with each other. Are we that weak? I mean, that we can go out into the world and, and do great things, but we can't, we can't work things out with each other in the church. I see a lot of faces because a lot of you have experienced this. But church is important. It's been minimized. It's been maligned. It's been mocked. But it's necessary. Now, let me be very careful here, and I've said this before. Is it necessary for salvation? No. Church is not necessary for salvation. It's between you and the Lord. That's an individual relationship. What is it good for? Spiritual protection, growth, discipleship, discipline, encouragement. That's what the church provides. That's spiritual safety. And here's the sad side of it. I've seen many do well. Now, I've been a Christian for close to 20 years. I've been to a few churches. I've seen people do well, come to church, heal, get better, get pulled away, either by some internal desire or somebody from the outside, go back to drugs, go back to drinking. They lose the accountability. They start isolating themselves. They go back to dysfunctional relationships. And I can tell you many times where people have left, they were doing well in the church, they were having that accountability, they left and they got divorced. And I'm talking, these aren't isolated incidents. These are, they constantly happen. Uh, Arnie does prison ministry back there. We were talking on Wednesday. And he sees, he'll do, he'll go into the prisons. Everybody will be happy that a brother's getting set free, let out. You know, they did their time. Eight, nine months later, they're back in prison. They went out into the world. They hung out with the wrong crowd. They didn't get that spiritual protection. Got rearrested, got charged. They're back in prison. Listen, it is what it is. I have to speak about the good and the bad. Church is a place to get plugged in. God didn't make us spiritual creatures to be solitary creatures. He made us to gel together as a unit, as a functional body of Christ. I love, I love so many things about what God does because he doesn't make it easy. If I said to you, come to the cross and life will get super easy, I would be lying to you. Sometimes it becomes more challenging. But remember, if God is with you, God is in you, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right? 1 Peter 5 tells us that Satan prowls as a roaring lion seeking who he can destroy and devour. He's a predator. And whenever I read that scripture, I, I watch like the, the animal channel, the animal planet stuff, and you know, the lionesses go out there and they hide in the grass and they blend in with the wheat and all the stuff that's growing. Then they go after the impalas or the African buffaloes. What do they look for? They look for the stragglers. They look for the ones separated, the easy marks. And that's what Satan does. And unfortunately, twisted people with bad motives will always try to pull you out of a Bible-based church. And guess who they're working for? Don't tell me somebody like that is mature. Don't tell me that they're a godly person because they're working against God. This, I think, comes down to influence as well. Before we move on, influences are very important. For those of us who have dominant personalities, we have to be careful how we influence others. Very important. Because I believe that we will be held accountable as informal leaders, formal leaders, 
um, but that type of person that can you know, create a following, be very careful with that. Careful how you influence others. And when you're not doing it right, it's very important to tell that person, I was in the flesh. That's wrong. To the rest of us who have followers where we always seem to have to follow somebody, maybe we're weaker, we're always looking to, for somebody stronger to hang out with, to tell us what to do, to make our decisions for us, I believe those type of people will also be held accountable. And I think as a pastor, that's part of the most heartbreaking thing that we have to do, is we try to influence for good. We try to get the word out. We try to, you know, do, do what God has called us to do, to stir up love and good works. And there's always those forces, some of them are in the church, that are pulling people to do the wrong thing. That's where it, it, it's painful to watch. I've seen it many times. Anyone who's a pastor will tell you the same thing. But our relationship to the assembly, to church, it's a two-way relationship. When we come to church, we go to church, and some people think we go to church to get something. I'm going to try this church. I'm going to see what it has to offer for me. Don't come to church without the attitude, what can I offer to the body? How can I be part of the body of Christ? Two-way relationship. As a matter of fact, it's so important. In the book of Revelation, at the end of chapter 1, pretty much... 1, 2, and 3, Jesus speaks exclusively about the church. That's how important it was to Jesus Christ. That's right there in the beginning to the seven churches. Across time, different types of churches, you know, geographically, uh, where they fit in, in, in time, in, in a sense. So it's very important to the Lord Jesus, and it should be important to us. And why does Jesus give these, these um, commands to the churches? Why does he say, you've fallen short in these areas? Because he wants the church to be healthy. Otherwise, it wouldn't have survived 2,000 years. It says, we stir each other up as we, as a group, as a church, see the day approaching the day that the Lord comes back for us. Now, here's what's interesting is, when the Lord comes back for us, 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, he, he comes back for us as a group. When he calls us home, we go together. Yes, we go to be with him individually, but we're all going together as a group. Church is important. We go together as a church. Now, I, I just kind of, kind of imagine what it would be like for the Lord to call us home. And as we're going up, seeing people from, you know, <laughs> different states, different countries, you know, wow, I never knew these people before, but now we're all together. I don't know how God's going to do it. He's really good at arranging stuff, but uh, he's good. You know, he's really good. Verse 26. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Now, verses 26 through 31, it's been uh, captioned under my study Bible as the danger of drawing back. So the fifth point is that we have a responsibility not to draw back. It's a very controversial passage. It's very important that we explain it correctly because if you pull it out of context, it can cause a lot of fear and terror you know, for those that are reading it. It doesn't mean that if, when we come to salvation, if we sin willfully, that we're going to hell. That's not what it means. If that was the case, I would have been the first one gone a long time ago and all of you. Let's put this in context. Who is he speaking to? Why is he speaking about the sacrifice? Because that makes all the difference in the world. Again, transitional period. Old covenant still around in Jerusalem. 
but a few years, the Romans will destroy it. During the writing of this letter, still there, still sacrificing. Jesus already died, rose, rose again, fulfillment of scriptures at the right hand of the Father. New covenant's been ushered in, but the old covenant's still going on. Some of the Hebrew Christians were afraid. Some of them felt pressure. Some of them felt, well, let me just go back to some of this stuff that I used to do. Let me do a sacrifice. Let me make everybody happy and appease everyone. And what he's saying is, after the sacrifice that's been made for sins, that's not going to help you. <laughs> You're going backwards when you've been completed. You can't do that. Now, to the Hebrew Christians, they were going back to the old system. But what do we have to go back to? The answer is nothing. If you've come to the cross, if you've given Jesus your heart, if you've trusted him as your Lord and Savior, there is nothing back in the world that you or I can go back to. There's no more sacrifice for sin. There's no more anything that's going to get us into heaven. This is it. And this is where we remain. The danger of drawing back. Now, verse 27, it says, the expectation of judgment, fiery indignation, destroying the adversaries. There's a theory out there, and Warren Wiersbe, who I love, um, I, I like to read his stuff. I don't necessarily agree with him on this point, but he makes a good conjecture. He said that all this has to do with physical death. God will just take out the person who's not, you know, calls themselves a Christian, but this is what they're doing. And I, I could actually support that from Scripture. 1 John 5, it says, for believers, there's a sin leading to death. And we covered that in 1 John. In Acts chapter 5, remember Ananias and Sapphira, they were believers. They were in the church, and God took them out. They were actively working against the Holy Spirit. That's a weird thing when someone who's a believer does that. But don't, don't fret, because this was really serious, and they knew, they knew what they were doing. Willful's the key word, and I'm going to come back to that. 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul speaks about how the church was so bad, it was such a mess, it was so debauched, that um, the Apostle Paul says some of you are weak and have died for this very reason. You've completely represented God in such an unholy and filthy way that he had to take some of them out. And there are those that we will run into that call themselves Christians that are actively working against God. And that should be sobering. Imagine that. A believer, so double-minded, they call themselves that, but they're actively working against the work that God is doing. God wants his church to be an oasis, not a cesspool. He has to deal with his people. It's going to get a little hotter here. Verse 28, anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? He's reminding us capital punishment was established in Mosaic law. There had to be witnesses. It was a serious offense. But how much worse would it be for a person to rage against the remedy for sin in Jesus Christ? How do you say in one breath, I'm a believer, and in the other breath, you push people away from that sacrifice that Jesus made for us? Spiritual sins instead of societal sins. Trampling the Christ underfoot, figuratively, of course. The blood of his covenant uh, counted as a common thing. None of us would say that, right? I mean, Jesus died for our sins. How would we say, well, that's a common thing. That's, that doesn't apply. It's not important. It has no power. 
and also insulting the spirit of grace. God, I don't want your grace. Who doesn't want God's grace? We'd have to be crazy to have that attitude. But it wouldn't be in here if it wasn't possible. I take the, of the opinion of, again, the Hebrew Christians were going backwards. They supposedly accepted Jesus as the Lord and Savior, and now they were going back to the beggarly things that brought them to the truth and completion, and this is for them. But again, people can still go back into the world. There's nothing for you. For all of you here, for me, there's nothing for us in the world. This is the only way. Nothing to go back to. Verse 30. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Not popular preaching, not a popular portion of scripture, but necessary. For those who say, well, he's just talking about unbelievers. It's not what he says here. The Lord will judge his people. He did it in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 32, vengeance is mine. Right? He did judge his people. He's a God of justice. And if he did it in the Old Testament, and he did it in the New Testament, I just covered Acts 5, 1 Corinthians 11, he will still continue to do it. Now just for a little theological point, the, the hyper-Calvinist, the five-point Calvinist has trouble with this because the fifth point is called perseverance of the saints. I just read to you or referenced two scriptures where the, the saints didn't persevere. So that's not, pretty, that's not accurate. Neither is limited atonement, neither is a few of them. The truth is, though, we get to decide how we will face God, in judgment or in grace. I'm going to choose grace. And everyone here can choose that too, right? Remember, salvation's not a fad. It's not something to play with. It's not fashion. It's serious. Now, perspective here is, let me go back to the word willful. You don't wake up one morning and this applies to you. Oh no, what did I do, Lord? doesn't happen. You don't get dragged here. This has to be willful against the scripture, against good judgment, against uh, loving brothers and sisters who, who are trying to caution you and love you. And you just, you step over them and you step over the son of God. It's a choice that we make. And I suspect very few people, if any, make it. I know I'm not going to. I want to read another scripture to you. This is, we're at the top of the hill here. We're just, we're a few more steps at the top. And then when we hit chapter 11, it's just going to be kind of smooth sailing. It's going to be really enjoyable. But hey, this is in the scripture. I agree with it. It has to be preached. 2 Peter 2.20 through 22. And now there's a context here. He's speaking about false teachers in context. However, it, it, it applies as well. It says, for if they have... if." Wait, so let me back up. For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of this world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. I'm going to embellish a little bit. I have three cats and two dogs. And sometimes my cats throw up and the dogs eat it. My wife is like, well, let me get to that with the paper towels. I'm like, don't worry, our dog's already gotten to it. <laughs> and she made the floor shine really nice with her tongue. 
Disgusting, isn't it? I give them pieces of hamburger. Sometimes when I'm making myself an omelet, I give them some eggs. I treat my dogs good. Why they would want to eat puke, yak, throw up. Like I said, it's right here in the scripture. I'm just embellishing a little bit. What is it? Is it the texture? Is it the smell? What is it that you love? <laughs> Pastor Joe, thanks to you, I can't eat lunch now. <laughs> People do that, though. What is it in the world? I had a discussion with a young lady who grew up in the church, who was coming of age, and her parents brought her to me. <laughs> and uh, we had a discussion. And I said to her, I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't know Jesus. I lived a very difficult life. I sinned like crazy. And it affected me. And it still affects me. And a few, you know, she still was young. And I said, at about 25, I became a Christian. I said, what is it about the dumpster that I crawled out of that makes you want to jump into? I said, Let, let's be real. And my, my counseling is very, you know, it's off the hook sometimes, but it's, it, it makes you wake up. I crawled out of that dumpster of the world, smelly, slimy, with letters hanging off my head. I got cleaned up. The Lord cleaned me up, and he, he set me and said, I, I want to use you now. And you're dying to get into that dumpster that I crawled out of. Why? What is it there that you're so attracted to? If that's your desire, then you know no one's going to be able to stop you. You're a young lady now. But you'll see. And it's a shame because people go back to ridiculous things. They go back to their own puke. God wants to give them a fresh salmon with all the omega-3s in it and such. And they want to eat somebody else's yak that their, their stomach couldn't hold down. Okay, I'll leave it at that. But you get my point, right? Remember, God's hands, I don't fear. When I get to see him and his hands are out, I'm not afraid of his hands. An abusive child will always be afraid of their father's hands. God's hands, to me, are loving and warm and, and reassuring because I come to him washed in the blood of Jesus. And if you come to him washed in the blood of Jesus, those hands in that way will be soft, tender, and reassuring and stroking for you as well. But it's your choice. In John 6, it says that many disciples left Jesus. Imagine that. When you don't read the whole Bible, you don't know half the stuff that's in there. You're just told what somebody wants you to hear from the pulpit. We covered John. In John 6, he had many disciples, believe it or not, that left him. Too much pressure. His teaching was getting ramped up. You know, and they, they weren't having it. And he says, Jesus turned to Peter. He turned to the twelve. And he said, are you going to go as well? And Peter said to him, to whom shall we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And I almost read from that, even if we wanted to leave, where are we going to go? Once you know the truth, you can't unknow the truth and go backwards. It doesn't make any sense. That's where I want to go as well. What about you? <laughs> verse 32. Hebrews 10, verse 32. But recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated or enlightened, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle by both reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companion of those who were so treated. 
for you had compassion on me in my chains, hint, hint, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. The writer of Hebrews is reminding the Hebrew Christians, I know you're going through stuff right now, but remember the early days? Remember the days when you were on fire for the Lord? You know, the terminology doesn't change as we go into a different time period. It's still the same. Remember the trials that you endured? Remember the, the pain and, and the suffering, you know, the poor, the poverty that you endured? Do we all remember being on fire for the Lord? Has the fire gone out? Has anybody here lost that fire? And then I would ask, what happened? What distracted you? Are they, is it worth it? You know, the Sardis Christians, Jesus had to tell them, you left me behind back there somewhere. You need to repent and go back and remember and, and you know, start all over again. Come back to that relationship with me. You know, being on fire for the Lord. I still love my Lord as I did in the beginning. I still have that fire for him. He still ministers to me. He still bails me out of trouble when I get into it. Um, it's a relationship. It's a relationship. Now, the, the writer of Hebrews is anonymous, but apparently some visited him during his legal troubles. And I think that I'm just going to come out. I've been good for 10 chapters. I believe that this is the Apostle Paul. I know I've said this before. And I've been good. I haven't slipped up and said, Paul said. I keep saying the writer of Hebrews says. But I think now I'm going to do the talk show circuit. I mean, I am so convinced that this is Paul. Not only in his legal troubles was he visited, but he speaks in some of the scripture as Romans. He uses a lot of great legal jargon. He knows so much about the Old Testament and the sacrificial system. He goes so deep into it, and he's so confident in going so deep that it makes our head spin when we read it. And some of it's very weighty and heady. So again, this is where my opinion comes in. You don't have to agree with it, but I believe that the Apostle Paul wrote this. And we'll move on. Verse 35. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. The sixth and last point that we come to for this morning is we have a responsibility to go the distance, to cross the finish line. God will help you, but we have to give it an effort. He says you need endurance. Galatians 6.9 is a great scripture. It says, do not grow weary in doing good, for in due time we will re receive the reward if we do not lose heart. Would a scripture be written to caution us not to do something if it wasn't possible? No. Why would God waste his breath? Why would he waste his words? Some of us grow weary in doing good. And if you're really doing good and you're really working with the Lord, the opposition is going to come hot and heavy. And you're going to sit back. And listen, I have these moments and you just sit back and you're like, oh, can I get a break? It's exhausting. But he says that we have to continue. The more that you do good, the more you stir up others to love and good works, the more that you're moved by God and you're fulfilling his purposes, the more you're going to be opposed. So don't grow weary. Hang in there. Cross the finish line. Hold out until the end, till the trumpet, till the day approaches. As a church, we see it. Some need endurance to push further. Today, some of you may need a push. 
And this morning, aren't you glad that we're in this portion of Scripture instead of suntanning or something? Because this is the encouragement God is speaking to you through His Word. I love it when people come up to me and they're they're so individualistic. That message was for me. (laughs) Like for nobody else. (laughs) And 20 people will say that. And I love that because God is hitting. He's reaching each person individually. It's amazing how he can do that. He can hit us individually, but he can also hit us as a group. That's the beauty of God's word. It has that much power. Before I became a Christian, I read all the other holy books. Uninspiring because the Holy Spirit was not a part of it. They're just words on a paper. You could read something by your favorite author and it can be moving, but it's only fleeting. It's temporary. It's not enough to guide you through your life. This is God's word. Verse 37, last few verses. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and not tarry, but the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition or destruction, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. All right? Quoted in Habakkuk 2, 4, which we covered in the book of Habakkuk. And actually, Habakkuk has been quoted several times in the New Testament in different forms. But mankind sees 2,000 years as a long time. God sees it as a drop in the bucket. And again, God, again, puts us in two camps. And he gives us the choice to decide which camp we want to be in. So for this one, the first camp is the one that perseveres to the end. They make it over the finish line. The just are just, are justified, are declared righteous because they live by faith. They trust God and what he did at the cross. And then the second camp, the ones who draw back, the Lord has no pleasure in it. I will tell you this, that if the Lord could be beaten, lose blood, have a crown of thorns planted on his head, have blood and his eyes swollen from being punched and beaten, Remember all the things he went through. They put something over his head and they, they were punching him and, you know, prophesy, who hit you? It was a big joke. So his, his eyes were probably just the whole night without sleep, losing blood, in pain, and he took that cross and he went up that hill. It wasn't a short distance. Calculate the distance between, I mean, it's pretty good distance. I think they, they, they have it close to a mile. Some have been there and actually done based on where he might have been. He took that big wooden cross and he went up the hill because of me. He went the distance. He didn't complain. And I believe, I really believe this, that as he was going up that hill, as he was being crucified, obviously he died for my sins. So my thought, the thought of me must have come to his mind. I wasn't even born yet. The thought of you, the thought of everyone here dying for your sins. Some will tell you limited atonement. You know, Jesus was he's very limited about how he, who he atoned for. No, he took the sins of the world upon him. And I will tell you this, if Jesus could make it up that hill for me, then I could make it to the finish line. I mean, this is better than a Rocky Balboa movie, isn't it? I mean, he just got beat up. Jesus got crucified. What do we do in life? What do we do that we make it through? Another sale, if we're in business, another sale. But for God... You know, I I just can't do it. Another trophy, another literal finish line to get over, another promotion, another million, a bigger boat. What is it? 
Another relationship? Oh, this one's going to be the one? We can work so hard for things in the world and then give up when it comes to the things of God. Why? We have it in the reverse. Eternity is eternity. The more we go into eternity, the more this is going to look like a, a speck and a drop in the bucket in comparison. We're not here that long. Brothers and sisters, when veins don't push blood, they have little leaflet valves in them, and they don't push the blood forward, that's normal. When it backs up, it's called valvular uh, impotence or incompetence, and it leads to hemorrhoids. <laughs> so you got, you got your fulfill this morning. <laughs> and that's dysfunctional. Veins are supposed to keep going, pushing the blood forward, keep moving forward. It's dysfunction when it goes backwards. As believers, we're to continue. We're to continue moving. We're to continue stepping. And for those of you this morning, you know, if, if you're really into the world, take a step and think about what he did for you. Take a step and think about him going up that hill for you and remaining on that cross for you because he loves you. If you're really legitimately struggling, let this message reach your heart. Let it minister to your soul. These are the things that he wants for you. He doesn't just say, listen, because I said so, because I died on the cross. He goes into great detail explaining what our benefits are as a result of him dying on the cross and what our responses and responsibilities are as a result of that. So I just pray that everyone gets ministered to this morning by what Jesus provides for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your blessings, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for what you've done for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you took all those steps, all those steps up that hill.